Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Scoliosis Dialogues. We are a podcast that was specifically uh, made uh, for the Scoliosis Research Society uh, for all things related to scoliosis. I'm your host, uh, Jason Brooks. I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon from the Scottish Rite Hospital for Children, and I would love to introduce my co-host, Dr. Terry Ishmael. Hi, Jason. Thanks. I'm Terry Ishmael. I'm also a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and I'm at the uh, Shriners Hospital for Children of Philadelphia. Excellent. And we are extremely excited uh, to have a guest on for this podcast, uh, Dr. Wade Schrader, who hails from the Nemours Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. Hey, Jason and Terry. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Perfect. So this is going to be a multifaceted episode uh, where we're going to talk about uh, some amazing research that Dr. Schrader and his team have put together out of their institution, but also talk about a nice uh, combination symposium that occurred between uh, uh, Dr. Schrader uh, as he led the AACPDM, um, as well as the Scoliosis Research Society uh, and a lot of members that joined there, as well as POSNA. So we are excited about this um, and are going to get into it. Um, so first, uh, Wade, uh, for those of y'all who uh, may not know Wade Schrader, which has to be almost no one, but you can just tell us a little bit about where uh, you were born um, and kind of uh, your education from, um, from kind of college up to uh, when you finish all of your training. Yeah. So I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, so grew up in the South. I went to undergrad at Mississippi State um, and had a degree in aerospace engineering and went to work at NASA over at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama for four years before I decided to go to medical school. I went to medical school at the University of Chicago uh, and then went on to the Mayo Clinic for my orthopedic residency and then went back to Dallas, went down to Dallas where Jason is for my fellowship uh, in pediatric orthopedics and scoliosis. And then I went out west, I uh, went to Phoenix where I was um, helped. I was really originally, I was only one of five pediatric orthopedic trained people in the Phoenix metropolitan area in 2005. So kind of crazy busy out there and joined Phoenix Children's there where I went on to start their cerebral palsy program. I uh, briefly went back to Mississippi, to Children's of Mississippi for three years where I was division chief there in the, at the university and director of pediatric rehab uh, for the Children's Hospital when Dr. Freeman Miller called me here at, from DuPont. And really, as those of many of you know, Dr. Miller has really been a pioneer in the, in the field of cerebral palsy. Uh, he's done a lot in scoliosis and CP and really wrote the, kind of the definitive textbook for cerebral palsy for surgical techniques. And he called and was retiring and wanted me to take over the program here. So I, I, I moved up here in January of, of 18. So it's coming up on six years that I've been here with this just amazing team of uh, I, the division of cerebral palsy inside the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, where we focus only really the majority of what we do is just neuromuscular orthopedics. We run see kids with CP, spina bifida, muscular dystrophies. Uh, in the muscle clinic and all. We have our gate lab and we have just a big multidisciplinary group to take care of these kids and then also our research arm. So very, very was sad to leave Mississippi and sad to leave Phoenix. I loved it out there, but um, has been a great opportunity for me to be here. And as you mentioned, I'm the current president of the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. So excited to talk about that collaboration too later on. So along that front, uh, 
Wait, if um, for those of us that know you, we kind of understand why you have a passion for cerebral palsy. Before listeners, if you could just let them know kind of yeah. why you decided to kind of like dedicate your life uh, to helping children specifically with cerebral palsy. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, so what Jason's alluding to is that in medical school, my wife and I wanted to start a family and and had triplets that were born very early at 28 weeks, two boys and a girl. And and both my boys have CP. And so, uh, you know, I went to medical school thinking about doing orthopedics. I was an engineer and thought I might even do arthroplasty. But then uh, which is part of the reason why I went to Mayo. But during my second year rotation doing pediatrics and taking care of some kids with CP, I just felt like. I kind of had found my purpose in life. Um, and, uh, you know, I loved all of pediatric orthopedics. I loved my time in Dallas and, you know, thought that my practice might be broader than CP. But, uh, you know, it, it again, it seems like, you know, you found you find your niche and you play your place in this world. Right. And um, everywhere I've been, my neuromuscular practice has just kind of taken over. So when Dr. Miller asked me to come up here, you know, he asked me that he said, are you ready for that to be really really the primary focus for your for your practice. And I felt like at that time I was. And so my two boys are are, are you know, part of our great family with my wife and our, my other two daughters. And they're 26 years old now and have done some amazing things in their own right. So I'm very proud. And, you know, it's a bit of a it's a bit of the family business, really, if you will. So, yeah, I love that. Um, and his kids are awesome. I've had a chance to meet all of them. Um, but uh, thank you for sharing that. We are here, though, to also talk about uh, your recent publication in the Spine Deformity Journal titled Transcranial Electric Motor Evoke Potential Monitoring During Scoliosis Surgery in Children with Cerebral Palsy and Active Seizure Disorder. Is it feasible and safe? Um, uh, you, you know, we could go through it all, but if you could just give us kind of your overall summary. Well, no, first, if you could just why did you decide to pursue this project? And then if you could just, you know, summarize it after that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all know for, you know, the standard of care is to do comprehensive intraoperative neuromonitoring for, for most of our children having scoliosis surgery. But in the field, in the area of CP, though, that's been kind of difficult. And a lot of practical results are folks have tried to monitor some of these kids and have had difficulty monitoring those kids, right? So um, not a lot of places have been successful. There's been reports in the literature of it only working, you know, less than 50% of the time. And so, and then there's that argument of, well, if you did find signal changes, what would you really do to change it? Um, and then the, ad, the addition of motor, of transcranial motor potentials, right, have added another area of concern in the adult brain literature there has been concern that that transcranial uh, potentials motors can increase seizure thresholds. So a lot of these kids with CP who are GMFCS four and five who are at risk for scoliosis need scoliosis surgery. You know, a large chunk of them have have seizure disorders too. So there's been some people who've advocated maybe you just do SSCPs and you don't do transcranial motors because you're worried about triggering seizures. So when I got here to DuPont, I was very pleased. I, you know, like a lot of our centers, we, we have excellent neuromonitoring partners. And um, it was, we were, I was very pleased that it seemed like we were more successful than maybe we had been at my other centers about really getting good, actionable intraoperative neuromonitoring. And so, you know, Dr. Sukhan Shah and I decided that we would 
kind of look at this in a systematic way. Nice. Can you tell us a little bit about the paper? Yeah. So it's a retrospective study. Um, it's uh, about 300 kids, all with CP, GMFCS four and five kids um, that had spine fusion over, you know, over about a 15 year period and um, about 18 year period. And uh, one of the things that was that was nice was that in the initial part of the study and before I got here, um, Dr. Miller didn't routinely monitor those kids. And so we had a contemporary cohort of kids that didn't have motor monitoring, didn't have transcranial motor evoked potentials. And so we could see about what what their seizure activity was post-op. So, so not only could we measure and see how effective we were at getting at getting any type of intraoperative monitoring, were we able to get any actionable signals? Were we able to, how successful were we able to do that? We were able to report that in a retrospective case series, but we were able to do a case control series to answer that question. Is it safe? Did it change the seizure threshold in those kids? And so, you know, what we found was that really in 75 to 80% of our kids, we were able to successfully monitor those kids with motor evoked potentials. Um, and I uh, felt that that was really probably higher than had been reported previously in the literature. Our neuromonitor team was able to provide a little bit of their technical tips for that, including um, maybe some increased voltages applied for TC uh, for the transcranial signals, as well as this is an important thing, really prolonging that latency period because these kids seem to have longer latency so that, you know, you give them the signal in order to measure the response, you really have to wait a longer time to measure that. And so with a couple of those technical technical, you know, improvements or alternation alterations, maybe in some techniques by our neuromonitoring staff, they were able to to respond to 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 monitor it 80, almost 80 percent of the time. And we really didn't see we didn't see any intraoperative seizure activity in any of those kids, even in you know, the kids that had active seizure disorders. And we didn't see any increase in seizure activity postoperatively in those kids. So felt like we could fairly definitively say that it was safe. It was safe to monitor them and it didn't, didn't increase their seizure threshold. That's fantastic. I think that like, you know, I think Jason and I have discussed this offline and, you know, there still are a number of centers around North America who do not routinely uh, monitor for various reasons, whether or not it's their culture, they don't see the utility in it, et cetera. But I think that this is actually, you know, some great objective data to show that, you know, it's safe to do it. And, you know, it, it's something that we should do if we have it available. So it's great, great result. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Go ahead, Jason. So, you know, I, I have like a little bit of a devil's advocate uh, um, <laughs> kind of view of this. Uh, and some of it is influenced by you a little bit and kind yep. of how we practice in Mississippi. Yeah. Um, but, you know, your your paper answered the question, can we do it? Right. And will it cause seizures? Right. It did not answer the question, does it matter? Right. And that is that is a bit more of a and, and for our you know, listeners, if you lost motors and a kid who can no longer walk uh, uh, and has never walked. Does it matter? Should you just finish the case as you were doing it? And some will say this is an ethical question. Like, how could you say it doesn't matter? Do you not care about the patients? 
Others will say there's been no data to say that long term we are affecting them, that we are changing their bowel or bladder function or things like that. So I know your paper wasn't designed to answer that question, but if you could just give your philosophy about why you believe it matters to kind of maybe counteract the naysayers who may believe it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, happy to talk about that, Jason. I know you and I have talked about it when the paper first came out and all. And you're right, like in Mississippi, we didn't routinely monitor those kids. In, in Arizona, we would try, but I would say that we were probably successful really less than 50% of the time. So that was kind of our take. And, and you know, it, you know, standard of care is definitely local, right? You know, if you go down through the medical legal types of pictures for this, um, and in Mississippi, I mean, the resources to do intraoperative monitoring, they were the ones that really kind of took the lead about that. We're saying, look, we can't, we really had a hard time kind of coming over there and, and wasting time, if you will, trying to set up for a case if we didn't, if we weren't going to likely going to get actionable uh, uh, results from that. You know, in our case, we did have, you know, we had, you know, a few patients that lost signals during, during the course of that. And all of those were really technical issues or maybe, you know, maybe some perfusion things, some increasing the maps and changing the anesthetic technique. We were really able to um, to get our signals back. So in this cohort, you're right. We didn't answer that question. Interestingly, we did have two kids in the in the control group that did have some change in bowel and bladder function post-operatively. Now they weren't monitored, right? So it's, we still, this group also still doesn't change, answer the question. Had we monitored those kids, would you've been able to save that? I do think, it, you know, being able to save bowel and bladder function potentially is a very important thing that we can offer these patients. And, and so while the paper didn't really answer that, it suggested that maybe with some technique, you know, adaptations, we can be a little bit more su successful. You know, there's some kids that you can't really monitor sphincter tone, right? And it's not as successful for that. But to me, that's probably the, one of the most important pieces for that in terms of when I'm up there in the OR trying to, to decide whether we continue on with monitoring or not, because we still, one out of five cases, we can't monitor them very well. We can't get meaningful information. I think, you know, in terms of the ability to walk, I think this is where really the devil's in the details, right? Um, I think it's really important incumbent on all of us, though, to know the exact physical function of that child. And it's easy to kind of group them all together as GMFCS fours and fives and that don't walk. But, you know, there's a lot of fours that are able to do some standing pivot transfers and to help the, their parents do transfers and things, just a little bit of weight bearing you know, as they go into adulthood goes a long way. And so, you know, you know, I think in that group, particularly, if you had a change in motors, you, you probably would want to respond to that. Right. And you probably would want to try to save that function as much as you can. And so that's where I, I think you're right. It's a it's a tough question and um, it's an eth a bit of an ethical question and it's a cultural thing. But I I think, you know, this shows that I think especially in those in those kids, we probably it's worth it's worth that diligence to pay attention to that. I think, you know, that, that, that's a great discussion and great points from, from both ends. I think that, like, you know, the, the bowel and bladder function is really important to preserve. I mean, and there's also, you know, some of these kids, if you change them from a 
spastic child into a flaccid child or remove uh, protective uh, sensation, et cetera. These are all potential issues that, you know, can be affected should there be a problem in the operating room. So, I mean, I kind of feel pretty strongly about it. I think they should all be monitored. And um, our practice at our institution is that, you know, everybody's monitored, but if there are no motors or sensories that, you know, we'll send the uh, monitoring folks home. So. Yeah, that's the way we do now too. Absolutely. Looks like I'm outnumbered here. <laughs> All right. So uh, um, as we, you know, go into the last half of this podcast, um, you know, uh, Wade, you uh, are um, the president of the AAC PDM, um, and, and which is much bigger than, than orthopedic surgery, much bigger than spine surgery in general. But you all had an amazing kind of combination symposium um, involving uh, SRS members, POSNA members, and AACPDM members, which all seem to kind of overlap. Can you tell us about the inception or the conception of this symposium? And then just tell us how it went uh, so that if it happens again, maybe we can get an, an even better you know, showing. Yeah, I'm, I'm super happy to talk about this. Uh, so, you know, AACPDM is a great organization. It, as you mentioned, Jason, it's multidisciplinary. Uh, orthopedic surgeons are a big part of our cohort, but we have a lot of rehab physicians, a lot of physical therapists, occupational therapists, there's seating engineers, there's pediatricians that do complex care, psychologists. It's really, it's a great organization. Um, and so, you know, I'm very proud to be the president of that organization. But you know, obviously we take care of kids with CP and a lot of kids with CP, especially those at GMFCS four and five function, they get scoliosis. And, and so, you know, a long time ago, I started reaching out and started doing instructional course lectures at AACPDM to talk about scoliosis, to kind of bring that, that community that's within the CP community of people that are interested in doing research and talking about that. And, and it always at that meeting, because it's not full of orthopedic surgeons, and there's certainly a small subset of even spine surgeons that are there, uh, it was always very, you know, folks just ate it up. It was very, it was always very eagerly attended. Um, it was um, very popular sessions because I think all of that group and that multidisciplinary, those multiple disciplinary teams wanted to learn more about scoliosis. We, uh, you know, I did a we did a, a sawbones one time on letting non-surgeons come in there and put in pedicle screws and all, right? And they loved it. People were lined up out the door, right? You know, so you know, so we started talking several years ago about trying to do a combined meeting with SRS, uh, where we could kind of bring in both of those groups. We bring in the surgeons, and maybe the surgeons from SRS would benefit from hearing about you know some of the ethical issues or the care coordination or some of the seating things. Right. And then obviously all of the group and part the other parts of AACPDM would benefit from hearing, you know, some of the work from some of the world's best spine surgeons. And so we started talking about doing it. It's a bit of a challenge because our two annual meetings are always really, really close together. Hmm. Um, and so we often will do pre-conferences uh, for AACPDM, like a lot of meetings. And so we got the idea was that maybe this year, because of some funny things about scheduling, our meeting was Sunday to Wednesday and their meeting, your typical meeting was typical Tuesday, Wednesday to Saturday, that we could possibly try to intersect that. So a group of very dedicated SRS members met us in Chicago on the Sunday after the Seattle meeting. And, um, and we put on, a, I think, a great symposium. It, it really, 
you know, from from A to Z, I think it was one of the most comprehensive um, courses on neuromuscular scoliosis. Right. Where where we talked about seating and we talked about uh, we talked about surgical details. We talked about care coordination. We talked about outcomes. Uh, you mentioned my son before. My my son Benjamin has had a spine fusion, and we're pretty fortunate. He was able to go to college, and you know he you know doesn't have like a communication disability, so he's able to articulate a little bit about what it was like for him as someone with GMFCS level four cerebral palsy, what it was like for him to go through a spinal fusion. So uh, you know, so that was that was fun and was a great you know great special moment for me. My partner Jason Howard interviewed interviewed uh, Benjamin and let him talk about that. And so you know, so I, I think it was really really popular. I think the SRS members had a lot of fun and hopefully they learned a little bit. We were able to learn a little bit about each other's organizations and I think we're gonna we're trying to put through. Um, the process of putting that in a webinar so that it's more widely accessible to both both of our memberships, as well as all the positive membership who also did help us co-sponsor the, the meeting. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and so uh, Jason and Chris, Chris Hardesty were the two co-directors of the pre-course. And so with me planning the, the overall meeting, I'll let them take care of all the nuts and bolts of it. And they did a fantastic job. I'm very uh, grateful to them for all of all of what they did for it. So I, I think it was great. That is really cool. It really seems like uh, uh, I feel a bit of, you know, FOMO not, you know, being there because it really sounds excellent. You know, I, I think for all the research we do, you know, in some ways uh, for spine deformity, I feel like we figured out a lot about idiopathic scoliosis, but neuromuscular scoliosis is one of those areas where I feel like the sky's the limit uh, just because of the heterogeneity of the population and yep. how hard it is sometimes. And, and so um, it's really great that y'all were able to dive deep into that. Um, you know, wait, we've heard so much amazing kind of information here. Um, like, I guess, uh, is there just kind of like one final thought that you kind of have that you would want to leave with surgeons who are listening, who might have a neuromuscular case, you know, coming up, like any pearls of, you know, wisdom, things that you like feel like, Every surgeon should know maybe if they only do one or two neuromuscular spines in a year that you kind of feel like they should really know to optimize their care, maybe pearls from that symposium. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that that we talked about, right, obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about minimizing complications in this incredibly high risk group. So that would be my my biggest pearl from that is that it, it really does take a big team to give the best care for those kids. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, necessarily a formalized group. It can be somewhat informal where people kind of come in and out of that, that team for that, but it, but it does have to be kind of intentional, right. To make sure that you're going through to optimize the children to make sure it's not just about the implants, right. And the technical details of the surgery. I mean, you know, in the CP world, Spine fusion really is one of the most amazing bang for your buck procedures in terms of improving these kids' quality of life. I mean, more than anything else we do almost, right? And that's been shown time and time again with different instruments. So it's incredibly important to these families. And, um, you know, I think, you know, along with that, you know, excellent technical care, I think just Think about that from a family-centered care perspective and, and think about that care coordination uh, 
And uh, don't don't forget about the hips, right? The hips can be a big <laughs> deal with that too. Those are those are kind of my big pearls that I would say. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Well, thanks a lot so much for having me on this. This has been a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to it. So thanks so much, Terry and Jason and all of SRS. Well, this has truly been excellent. Um, we thank you for your time, Wade. And uh, for all of you all who are you know listening, please stay tuned for more amazing episodes. Uh, we have a dynamic set of uh, hosts and guests. And as you can see, lots of great research that's being published in Spine Deformity. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all at the upcoming IMAS meeting. Um, and uh, have a wonderful night. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information.